Christian, if you're really in Christ, He promised you a ticket, a personalized ticket to His great victory celebration in heaven, to the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom is continuing his current series with part six of The Seven Churches of Revelation. We're looking at the third letter in a series of seven letters to seven churches in Revelation, chapters two and three. This third letter is the letter to the church in Pergamum, known as the Church of Undiscerning Tolerance. As you'll learn, there are enduring lessons for you today from the letter to the church at Pergamum. First, doctrine matters. Second, church discipline matters. Third, your loyalty to Jesus Christ above all things matters. Fourth, your love for Jesus Christ above all people and things matters. And finally, your personal holiness matters. Keep that in mind as our teacher continues his study today on The Word Unleashed. Christ here in his letter to Pergamum said that there were those in the congregation of that church who essentially followed the same teaching as Balaam. What was he saying? He was saying there are people in that congregation who are taking the same approach to paganism. They're saying, look, it, it doesn't matter. Don't get all out of shape about this. You need to fit into your culture. This is what we do in Pergamum. The whole city is about this. You need to go to these feasts. How are you going to reach your neighbors if you don't go to these feasts? How are you going to have an opportunity? How are you going to have a business? How are you going to be able to buy and sell? You need to go to the feasts at the temple. Oh, and by the way, the feasts at the temple include some pretty sordid things. Temple prostitution and other things. And you'll just have to go along with that and God will forgive you for that. They attended the pagan temple feast and even engaged in immoral sexual behavior. What these people were arguing for was simply adapting to the culture. Demosthenes, the famous Greek orator, made it clear that sexual sin was perfectly normal in the Greek culture. This is what he writes. We have courtesans or prostitutes for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and of having a faithful guardian of our household affairs. So those who held the teaching of Balaam and Pergamum, they were simply arguing that we need to fit in. We need to conform to the moral standards of our day. There's no reason to stand out like we do. It's possible they even argued from 1 Corinthians that such worship didn't violate the Christian faith since the gods of Pergamum weren't really gods at all anyway. Perhaps it was more pragmatic. Maybe they just wanted to fit in with the social context of the city so they could do business, regardless of what their reason was. They didn't merely do these things. They tried to convince other people in the church to follow them. And that's how it always works. Why? Because I've got to justify my choices. So I need to bring other people along with me. And if I bring other people along with me, I'll feel better about myself. Jesus says, I, I have this against you. There are members in your church who follow the same teaching path Balaam did and are saying it's okay. It's okay to get involved in the pagan feasts. It's okay to eat the, the, the food that's been sacrificed to idols and to eat it there in the temple itself as part of this 
this terrible feast, and it's okay even to participate in the sinful sexual practices. There's a second thing he had against them, and that is there were members in this church who held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Notice verse 15. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we met this group back in Ephesus, the church to Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 6. There, the church in Ephesus rejected these people, not Pergamum. Outside of Revelation, we know little about this group. I mentioned to you when we, we dealt with that in chapter 2, verse 6, that Irenaeus says this heresy was, was started by Nicholas, one of the seven men who were appointed to distribute food to the widows in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. He later proved, Irenaeus says, to be a false believer, but maintained his influence because of his past credentials. Other church fathers agree that this man started a sect of licentious antinomian Gnostics. But there is one who disagrees. Clement of Alexandria defended Nicholas, arguing that it wasn't Nicholas's problem. His teaching had been misunderstood and and distorted, misrepresented, and that's how the Nicolaitans ended up on their view. Victorinus, the first commentator on Revelation, writing around 270 AD, said this of the Nicolaitans, they were false and troublesome men who, as ministers under the name of Nicholas, had made for themselves a heresy to the effect that what had been offered to idols might be might be eaten, and that whoever should have committed fornication might receive peace on the eighth day. In other words, eight days later, you're good. God will forgive you, you move on. We can't be certain of who these people were, but we do know this. All we know for sure is that the teaching of the Nicolaitans was similar but not identical to the teaching of Balaam. Know how Jesus, notice how Jesus puts it in verse 15. So you also have some. So this is, this is different from the, those who held the teaching of Balaam, but it's similar in the same way. In the case of both of these groups, their views taught that Christians could attend the pagan feasts at the temple and engage in sexual immorality at the temple to sort of fit in the culture. But it appears the Nicolaitans were more open and aggressive in introducing pagan practices into the church. Now, Immediately, even as I share what was happening, you understand this. If these two groups were allowed to continue in the church in Pergamum and to thrive, eventually the church itself would be destroyed. And so this correction of sin, this identification of the sin, is followed in verse 16 by a call for repentance. Verse 16, therefore, repent. Therefore, in light of my hatred of these things, listen, the people in Pergamum already knew these things were sin. I mean, think about it. They had the Old Testament. They'd read the story of Balaam. They had 1 Corinthians, where Paul had said you could eat meat sold in the meat market if you did it in your private home or you did it in the, an unbeliever's home, and he didn't tell you that's where it was offered, and nobody was going to be offended by that. But what you couldn't do, Paul said, was go to the pagan temple and have a feast there. And you certainly couldn't engage in sexual sin. That's very clear in 1 Corinthians. To do so is to take Christ into that relationship with you. They also had the book of Acts, and they had the decision of the Jerusalem council. This had been settled so long before, 45 years before, at the Jerusalem council, Acts 15, 29. 
abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from fornication. It dealt with this very reality 45 years earlier. So they knew. They knew what they were doing was wrong, but they refused to repent, these two groups who were engaged in this. But here's what I don't want you to miss. That's not the point of this letter. That wasn't our Lord's point. Our Lord's real issue with this church was that the faithful leaders and the faithful members of the church who had remained true to Christ, even in spite of the persecution they had endured, had failed to discipline the sinning members out of the church. That's what Christ calls the church to repent of. Repent. The Greek word means to have a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. What is Christ calling them to repent of? Or to say it another way, what is the sin in the church in Pergamum? Most of the church wasn't holding to false teaching. Remember, we just saw that back in verse 13. Instead, their sin is the undiscerning, sentimental, lazy toleration of false teachers and of sinning believers. Their problem was the opposite of Ephesus. Ephesus practiced discipline but had lost their first love for Christ. Pergamum still was committed to Christ, but failed to faithfully discipline false teachers and sinning members. And Christ calls them to repent and to practice church discipline. Verse 16, or else I am coming to you quickly. If they failed to repent, Christ promised he was going to come, and he was going to come quickly. Now, that could refer to the second coming, and there are some commentators who say, when I come in the second coming, I'm going I'm to assess everything, evaluate everything, and then people will get what they deserve based on their deeds. That's possible. But I think it's more likely here a reference to his coming in temporal judgment shortly against that church in the first century. I think that seems far more likely. Verse 16 says, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He will wage war with his words against the false teachers and sinning members of this church. Now, the statement in verse 16, some think this means Christ is going to judge all the members of the church. But I don't think that's what what our Lord is saying here because of the change in pronouns. Notice what he says. He changes from you, the church, to them, the false teachers, which seems to imply his judgment was to be against those, those members of the church who were teaching others to follow their, their sinning ways. And in addition to that, this expression of making war with the sword of his mouth is reserved in the book of Revelation for his enemies. Of course, Christ would still hold this church and its faithful members and leaders responsible if they fail to obey him. But the sword in Jesus' mouth describes his mighty words spoken specifically against these false teachers in the church. However, if the rest of the church was unwilling to repent, was unwilling to discipline these sinning members, then it would show that they themselves deserved Christ's judgment, and perhaps they were not believers either. Now that brings us then to the conclusion of the letter, an exhortation to each believer in verse 17. It begins with a call to listen, a call to listen. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is repeated in each of the letters. It's a challenge to everyone. It's a challenge to you, to everyone who hears or reads these letters, to pay attention to what the Spirit is saying to all the churches through His Word. It's interesting, isn't it? Christ is speaking these words, and the Spirit is speaking these words as well. It's a call to every Christian and every church to hear the contents of this letter and every letter. Let me just ask you, are you paying attention? Are you paying attention to what Christ says here? If you have ears to hear God's Word, hear. Hear what the Spirit is saying. This matters. And then comes a call to overcome. The second half of verse 17 To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Now, as we've already learned with the other two churches, if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ and you just keep on believing, you are an overcomer. We saw this in 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5. You can look it up again. Every believer is an overcomer, and every believer will inherit all of the promises made in all seven of these letters to those who overcome. So these are your promises. They're my promises if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, in Pergamum, the promise to true believers, to those who overcome, is this. To him I will give some of the hidden manna, or I will give the hidden manna. You'll notice the word some is italicized, which means it's added by the translators. Now, what is this? Now, you remember, of course, what manna is. Manna was the white, honey-flavored bread that God sent from heaven to feed the Israelites during their wilderness wanderings, Exodus 16. But what is this, the hidden manna? There have been various suggestions for how to understand this reference, Some say it represents our future reward. You get heavenly manna. Some say it represents our present spiritual food. Just as manna fed the physical bodies of the children of Israel in the Old Testament, manna is is spiritual food for our souls now. Others say no, it refers to the pot of manna that was kept in the Ark of the Covenant to, to commemorate God sending the manna, and that symbolizes When we get to heaven, that's where the true ark is, according to the book of Hebrews, right? And so when we get to heaven, we're going to eat of the true heavenly food that belongs to God's people. Others say, no, this is Christ himself who is the bread from heaven. You remember he said, you got manna in the wilderness, but the Father sent me. I'm the real bread. I'm prone to think this last is the right choice. He's saying... If you'll be faithful, if you won't surrender my name, if you won't live in patterns of unrepentant sin, if you will evidence that you are mine by being committed to me, then I'll give you myself. You get the the bread from heaven. You get me. He adds, and I will give him a white stone. Again, there have been several suggestions as to what this white stone represents. Some suggest it's It refers to a ballot, because in the ancient world, votes were sometimes made by placing stones in a pot. There were no hanging chads in the ancient world. A black stone was no, a white stone was a vote for acceptance. 
So some say this is a ballot. Others say, no, this refers to a legal verdict. Again, a, in courtroom, often a black stone was a guilty verdict. We still speak of blacklisting or blackballing someone. And a white stone was an acquittal. Another view is that the white stone represents a, a memorable occasion. Pliny speaks of a day, quote, marked by the whitest of white stones. In the same way, we use the expression a red-letter day. Still others, and I think this is very unlikely, think it refers to an amulet worn to protect against evil. Some of the people in Pergamum did this, but I don't think Christ is borrowing from their superstition and paganism. Some think it refers to the, the Urim, the stone worn by the high priest. But I think most likely, and many commentators would agree with this, most likely this symbolism comes from a white stone that was customarily given to the winners of athletic events. Remember, this area was a place where the games were often held. And when you completed the event, when you won, you were given a white stone, and that stone was inscribed with your name as the winner. And here's what was interesting. That stone served as your ticket to a special awards banquet for the winners. Christ promised believers. He promised the overcomers. Christian, if you're really in Christ, He promised you a ticket, a personalized ticket to His great victory celebration in heaven, to the great marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. Verse 17 says, and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. There are those who argue this new name written on the stone is the name of Christ, and of course that's possible. But I think it's more likely, particularly in how it's expressed here, that it's the name of the one who overcomes. But it's a new name for that believer, for you. It's a new name, new not in time but in quality. It represents the new character of the believer. God gives every true believer a new character, and with that new character, a new name which only that believer knows. You remember what he did for Jacob. Your name's Jacob, but you're no longer going to be Jacob. You're going to be Israel. A new name symbolizing a new character. It's engraved on the white stone given to the victors and will be our admission pass into eternal glory. And that new name will, in a unique way, demonstrate God's individual love for every one of His true children. That's something worth being faithful for. Christ says, be faithful, and I'll give you the hidden manna. I'll give you the bread that came down from heaven. I'll give you myself. And if you're faithful, I'll give you a white stone that shows you were an overcomer, and I'll write your name on that stone, and that will be your ticket into the marriage supper of the Lamb, into eternal glory. And that name that I inscribe on that stone, it'll be a new name. It describes not who you were, but who in sovereign grace I have made you. What a letter. So, what are the enduring lessons from the letter to Pergamum? There are several of them. First of all, doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. Jesus was concerned about what was being taught in the church in Pergamum. 
Why? Because doctrine influences how you act. It did the church there. It does every other church. It does you. What you believe matters. You have to begin with what you know because what you know drives what you do. Don't ever be one of those thoughtless, inane people who say doctrine is unimportant. Nothing could be more important to your Christian life than doctrine because it will shape you entirely and completely. Secondly, church discipline matters. Remember, this was the primary issue Jesus had with his church. It was their refusal to discipline the sinning members in their church. Christ said, this is what I'm concerned about. When we practice church discipline, listen, I know it's uncomfortable. It's not like something I enjoy or the elders enjoy, but we do it because Christ commanded it, and it still matters to Christ. This is his church, not my church, not the elders' church, ultimately not your church. It's his church, and we're going to do things as best we can his way. And it matters to him. It mattered to this church. He said, what are you doing? You're letting these people stay in the church? Thirdly, your loyalty to Jesus Christ above all things matters. This is what he praised these believers for there in Pergamum. You, you got to that that part of the city where the temple was, and there was a lot of pressure. Are you going to give in? Are you going to be able to buy and sell? Are you going to be able to live a normal life? Are you going to fit into the culture? All you got to do is just go in there and, you know, say your little prayer, burn your little candles, and say, Caesar is Lord. You don't have to mean it. And then all is good. They said, no, Jesus is Lord. Your loyalty to Christ matters. You must never submit to any authority in place of Jesus Christ. In the first century, true believers refused to acknowledge the lordship of Caesar and instead acknowledged the lordship of Jesus Christ. Antipas was killed for confessing Christ and refusing to confess the emperor. And Christ said, I praise him. He's, he gets the same title I wear, the faithful witness. I can tell you this, there were people in that church, I'm sure, who said, Antipas, what are you doing? Just say the words Think about all the life you have in front of you, but I can promise this, the moment Antipas opened his eyes in heaven, he was grateful for the decision he made. Thirdly, or excuse me, fourthly, your love for Jesus Christ. Your love for Jesus Christ above all people and things matters. Our love for Jesus Christ is to be supreme. We must never allow him to be displaced by anything, by family, by wealth and power, by personal comfort, by work, by success, whatever it is. And then finally, your personal holiness matters. When professing Christians in Pergamum were attending pagan temples, eating food offered to idols at those temples, and committing sexual sin, Christ saw and he cared. He cares about our sin as well. Yes, he paid for it with his blood. Yes, he has redeemed us from our sin. But that doesn't mean we now have a license to sin. Hebrews Chapter 12, verse 14 says, Pursue sanctification, pursue sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. Your personal wholeness matters to Christ. These are powerful lessons from a first century church. May we embrace them. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part six of The Seven Churches of Revelation.
Join us next time for part seven, as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. And Tom, understanding the important lessons from the letter to Pergamum is one thing, but applying them to our lives, well, that's another thing entirely, isn't it? That's so true. There's such a difference between looking at ourselves in the mirror of Scripture and being changed by what we see. Scripture urges us to apply the truth, and so I think we have to learn the lessons from this church. We have to recognize that what we believe, doctrine matters, that church discipline is crucial to Christ, that our loyalty to Christ is what matters to Him above all things, and that we must love Him first. And loving Him means that we obey His commandments, that holiness matters to us. Friend, let me just ask you, are those priorities in your life, or are you mimicking those in the church in Pergamum about whom our Lord had those very difficult things to say? Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener— We'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. And don't forget to connect with us on social, at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's the word unleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.